Well, good morning, Grace Baptist Church. I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Austin and McGregor, from your brothers and sisters in Christ there. A faithful pastor doesn't carelessly give over the pulpit. And so, but, so to be asked to be, to preach here by Pastor Blake, a man of conviction and steadfast character, and to be given his pulpit, it is indeed an honor and a privilege for me to be able to serve you this morning in the Word of God and with the Word of God. And so to do that, to serve you in the Word of God this morning, if you would turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Galatians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11, and you'll have seen that outline that was inserted in your bulletin for this text. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, I want to read 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and do not live like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That is the word of the living God, and it is our text through which we will hear from him this morning. And I trust that... It will be, as we just sang, that we have come with open hearts to receive the Word of God, this ancient Word that we have been given, and that it will indeed be changing me and changing you. But keeping your finger here now in this text, turn with me please to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. We want to look at this portion of Scripture here in Acts chapter 5 as an introduction to our text. This, in Acts chapter 5, is just after the Lord himself has implemented the very first discipline in the church by killing Ananias and Sapphira in what really is at that time still a very fledgling and new church. You'll recall how Ananias and Sapphira had conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit. The Lord struck them dead and it brought fear upon all the people. And this is where we now pick it up in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and we want to take note specifically of the status of Peter in the church. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest dared join them because they recognized, they saw and had heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They dared not join them unless they were wholly committed. They recognized by this that this was a serious thing. The people feared, but they held them in high esteem nonetheless. In verse 14 now, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
And so we notice here Peter's status, Peter's position in the church, how highly he was regarded. Now our text in Galatians that we read says, but when Peter, or when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch. Acts chapter 5, this is not Antioch, this is Jerusalem. This is still before there were any Christians in Antioch. Really, this was before the church even moved outside of Jerusalem. The people who are being saved are all Jewish. Here in Acts chapter 5, this was even before the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And on the biblical record, the Apostle Paul has not even come on the scene yet. But we see Peter's status in the church, that he was immensely elevated. There's no question about that. We're not wanting to address the shadow of Peter falling on people or the healing. That's not our purpose. What we want to note here is that here is this great apostle with this elevated status in the church. This apostle who preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people at one time were saved. And now it says now more than ever people are being saved. So there's this great work of the gospel going on that had been started by Christ, yes, but also by this man, Peter, who proclaimed the gospel for the first time at Pentecost, 3,000 people being saved, and now more than ever people are being saved. And so we see and understand the high regard that the people in the church had for Peter. He was seen as a leader among the apostles. And certainly by those who were in Antioch, who were largely Gentiles. And the Galatians also being Gentiles, who the Galatians being the audience of our text in Galatians. They all knew this great apostle who had preached at Pentecost and how the work of the church had begun through him in that way. How the church, this mighty work of God, how it had begun by and through the preaching of Peter. And that they, the Gentiles, were now allowed to enter into this work, into this gospel that Peter had proclaimed at Pentecost. They knew of the subsequent miracles of Peter. Likely even the greatest point of elevation. The elevation of Peter in the Gentile church in Antioch was his encounter with the Roman centurion Cornelius and the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And I will just let you read that on your own sometime if you're not familiar with that account, but I'm just going to give you a summary of that. Cornelius, a centurion, a man who fears God, gave generously to the Jewish synagogues. He recognized the God of Israel to be the true God. He sees or he is commanded then in a vision that he is to send men to Joppa and have Peter brought to him. And as these men come to Joppa to where Peter is. Peter is waiting on the housetop and he's smelling the food that is being made inside. He's hungry, but he falls into a trance or into a state of seeing this vision of this sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kind of creepy, crawly creatures, all such as were unclean for Jews to consume as food. And this happened three times, and the Lord said each time, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And each time Peter would say, Not so, Lord, for I have not eaten ever, I've never eaten anything unclean. I am a Jew, I would never touch those things. And as Peter is wondering then what all this means, these men who have been sent from the Roman centurion Cornelius, they come and they tell him about Cornelius. 
And so the next day he goes with them to Cornelius' house. And, he went to, and when he enters this house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, a man of power and authority, a Roman, he bows to this Jewish fisherman, Peter, and he worships him. But Peter lifts him up and he says, Not so, for I am but a man. It is after all this, where Peter now understands the message of the sheet coming down from heaven, the sheet that was filled with all the creepy crawlies. And he says now in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, after seeing all this, he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They would consider them as common, as unclean, as dogs even. And thus, having gone into the home of this centurion, a Gentile, Peter understands that God chooses for himself as he wishes. Even Gentiles, that there truly is no partiality with God. Peter preaches Christ to Cornelius and his household and those who hear They are regenerated, they believe, and they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them in such a way that Peter and those other Jews who are with them, they recognize that indeed the Holy Spirit has now fallen upon these Gentiles. They are astonished, they're amazed that the Holy Spirit would come upon these common and unclean people, but they do recognize that this salvation by grace through faith And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has indeed come to these Gentiles. And Peter acknowledges then that these are then equal Christians with them, and he commands them to be baptized. And so in all of that, Peter has done that which was unacceptable for a Jew to do. He has entered into the house of an unclean person. He has entered into a Gentile's home. And now as he comes back to Jerusalem, he's confronted by those of the circumcision party, and he's being accused by them. And they're saying to him, Peter, you went into the home of an uncircumcised man. You went into the home of those who are unclean, and you ate with them. You have defiled yourself through this. But Peter defends the integrity of the Gentiles. He he defends the integrity of their salvation, but also the integrity of the integration of the Gentiles into the church. And he does so boldly and valiantly. He recounts to these people what has happened. How the Lord has saved these Gentiles and that we should not call anyone common or unclean and that the Lord truly is no respecter of persons. And as he recounts to these Jews then what has happened, they finally relent. For the Jews who were with Peter at Cornelius' house, they also testify of the same. And they say, yes, we were there. We witnessed the Holy Spirit coming upon these people. The, The Lord truly did save these Gentiles, those who we thought to be common and unclean. And when they hear this testimony from the Jews who were with Peter, they drop the case against Peter. And they praise and glorify God and say, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're willing to accept that these Gentiles have also been granted repentance that leads to life. They're willing to recognize and acknowledge that these Gentiles are their brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we keep reading in Acts chapter 11, we see that 
This event, at least in part, played a huge role in great evangelism efforts in Antioch after persecution arose in Jerusalem. This event resulted in the church springing up in Antioch, growing exponentially, almost like it had in Jerusalem. It it became the Jerusalem 2.0, except that this was now growing with Gentiles and not Jews, as in Jerusalem. And so Peter, though he was the apostle to the Jews, for these Gentiles, they saw him as the man through whom the gospel was brought to them. They saw him as the man through whom the gospel was revealed to them as Gentiles. And so for them, there was just this great appreciation for this apostle through whom they thought they saw the gospel had been opened to them. And though they likely didn't elevate him as much as we saw in Acts chapter 5, he was very highly regarded and no doubt upon his arrival, and his arrival brought much anticipation for the church in Antioch. He would have been, because of this, almost been received almost as a celebrity or as a hero because of what he meant to them. And now back in our text, Paul giving his final defense for the the authority of his apostleship to the Galatians, he says, not only did the apostles affirm and confirm my authority as an apostle, as he has said just prior to our text, he was given the apostleship by the same Holy Spirit as Peter was given his. He says, my authority in the gospel that I preach is such that I will even publicly call out one of such status and stature as Peter when he contradicts the gospel. And Paul's saying that in doing so, I will not even be stepping out of line in the least. And thus, by that, it is in a sense the capstone, the the one thing that, that finally closes all arguments against Paul not being a legitimate apostle. If he was not legitimate, If he was not a legitimate apostle, he could not legitimately have confronted the apostle Peter, which he did, and which he did, he he says, as Peter's equal. He was an apostle of the gospel, and he did oppose Peter. He did it not to defend his apostleship, but he did it for the purpose of defending the truth of the gospel. Though by this he does show that it does indeed defend his apostleship. This epistle, this epistle of Paul to the Galatians is dealing with those who are propagating a false gospel, those who are attacking Paul's credibility as an apostle. And he has been defending his apostleship. He is called anathema, those who are propagating this false gospel. And he has held nothing back. He has called them false brothers, those who are willfully attempting to undermine the gospel. But now, in defending his apostleship, he is presenting to the Galatians in our text, not a false brother, not one who preaches a false gospel, but those who are living in gospel hypocrisy. Those who, on paper, agreed with the gospel completely. In Acts chapter 15, in this Jerusalem council with all the apostles and the elders, they were all of one accord. They were in complete agreement, not only in the gospel, but also in what they believed the fruit of that gospel should then be. 
There was no distinction between them. Peter and Paul did not believe something different one from the other. And Paul is not confronting Peter as a false brother as he has confronted those who, who he has declared to be false brothers previously, those who were propagating a false brother. He recognizes Peter not only as a brother but as a fellow apostle. And so he addresses the gospel hypocrisy that Peter has now initiated in the church. And we'll look at this in four points as you see them in your outline. We see first in verse 11 the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. There should always be a clash when there is gospel hypocrisy, and sadly today there isn't nearly enough of a clash when there is gospel hypocrisy in the church. We see the clash then between these two great apostles, both of whom had been given this apostolic ministry by the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, we see the cause of gospel hypocrisy. Verse 13, the consequences. And then verse 14, the confronting of that gospel hypocrisy. Beginning then in verse 11, with a clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because he stood condemned. The NIV translates that as, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. The New King James says, I opposed him to his face because he was to be blamed In this clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy, we see two features. We see the nature of the clash, and then we also see the reason for the clash. First, we see the nature. When Peter first came to Antioch, and we've seen how he would have been received because of how highly esteemed he was. When he first came, he had full and glad fellowship with all those who were there. But Paul says, I opposed him to his face. This was not an, um, you know, Peter, I don't know if this is really that big of a deal, but I thought maybe I should mention this to you. You know, Peter, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you would want to consider, but, you know, if that's what you think, if that's how you feel, you know, who am I to judge? You know, you do what you feel is right. This was not that at all. This was, Paul says, to his face, in his face, clearly, boldly. It says he opposed him. It carries the idea of forbidding. This is Paul saying, Peter, I forbid you to keep doing what you're doing. This was a command. This was done with authority. There was no hesitancy in Paul's approach or confrontation. This was not suggestive. This was with full and in all authority. It was done to his face. He didn't say it everywhere except to Peter. And we see then the nature of the clash that it is to be addressed at its source. To address it where the fault really lies. And if only men of God today had the unction and the courage to do more of this. Today we have responses of, ah, you know, maybe that's not right, but you know, that'd be unloving. It would create conflict, so therefore I will just leave it. But we see the nature of the clash. And though Paul calls or recalls this incident to the Galatians, 
to demonstrate his authority in the gospel, we see again that that is not why he did it. He did it not to give himself some platform or some clout or some fame or some kind of recognition. The reason was not to prove legitimate authority, though the very action of confronting Peter did prove the legitimacy of his authority as an apostle. But that was not the reason behind it. It was, Paul says, because he stood condemned, because he was to be blamed. There was no false or speculative accusation. This was not hearsay. He rightfully was to be blamed. It could easily, and it was easily proven, it could very easily be demonstrated. It was clear there was no reasonable doubt here. Peter was guilty. This was not innocent until proven guilty. He was guilty. And as the NIV translates, he was clearly in the wrong. That is the only reason why Paul in this nature confronted him. Because Paul was a man of character and principle and he was committed to the truth of the gospel, not his own reputation. And thus, because Peter was clearly in the wrong, it was the right thing to do. And because Peter was clearly in the wrong, it was the only thing to do. And it was the only thing that a man of principle and character could do. And it was the only thing that a man of character and principle would do. And so we see then the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. We see the nature that it is to the face, addressing it at its source, where the problem really lies. Gospel hypocrisy must be addressed where the fault initiates. Taking the bull by the horns. This is not something to be timid or passive with. Today we often see the grossest kind of gospel hypocrisy and men are too worried about being seen as unloving. Now, we should be loving. Please do not misunderstand me. Don't get me wrong. But Paul's concern is the truth of the gospel. And the truth is that sometimes, and probably even most of the time, when there is legitimate gospel hypocrisy, when they are clearly in the wrong, no matter how you confront it, it will be seen and viewed as being harsh and unloving by some, and maybe even by most. We also see the reason for what was happening. It was clearly in the wrong. It undermined the gospel. And it undermined everything about the gospel. And that cannot and it must not be tolerated. It disguised the very message of what the gospel is. And so we see this clash that should come when there is gospel hypocrisy. But then in verse 12, we also see the cause for this gospel hypocrisy. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These of the circumcision party, as I understand, are the same people from the same group that confronted Peter after he went into Cornelius' house. And what we see immediately is that the cause of gospel hypocrisy is the fear of man which really boils down to self, self-preservation. What will people think of me? It is not being committed to what is right above all else. It is being committed to self, to trying to protect oneself. These Jews were men from Jerusalem. 
And they certainly practiced circumcision and all that which the Jews would practice as their custom was. These Jews, as I understand, they accepted that the gospel is by grace through faith, even as they did when Peter recounted to them what happened when he went into the house of Cornelius the centurion. And when they confronted him and they said to Peter, how dare you enter into a home of a Gentile? And when Peter told them what happened, they were then the ones who said, well, then God has granted also unto them repentance that leads to life. They would reluctantly allow these Gentiles that they could be saved by grace through faith, but they themselves would remain very religious in their Jewish practices, especially in their dietary laws. And they would often still trend towards imposing these customs now also on the Gentiles. They had not yet made the connection, the instruction that is to the Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, that whatsoever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. And as Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27, he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you, that is, a Christian, Jew or Gentile, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. These Jews from Jerusalem might reluctantly allow for these Gentiles to be saved, but they would certainly require that the Jews still keep the Jewish traditions and customs, and they themselves would refrain from eating with Gentiles. But the instruction of the Word of God to the Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, the instruction of the Word of God to the the Christian is to eat what is set before you, regardless of who sets it before you. And Peter had been doing this until now. He had come to Antioch, and he had not declined any dinner invitations. He had been eating whatever and with whoever was beside him. And I am certain that he was, as a Jew, who were not uh, Jews not being allowed to eat pork, I am certain he was quite enjoying the bacon. He was probably even telling Paul, man, that was a good meal. I can't wait till tomorrow. I hear they're baking a ham for me when I go over there tomorrow. He was eating whatever with whoever, and he was completely free to do so. And he was having full and free and sweet fellowship with these people who were his dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And there were no doubt many invitations for him, for as we saw, everyone would have considered it a huge honor to have this great apostle by whom God had proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles, to have this great apostle come to their home. Though Peter, or through Peter, the Lord had revealed that they too could be fellow heirs of the grace that was in Christ Jesus, this was the man who had valiantly defended them when he had been confronted for going into a Gentile's house. And thus, they might have even felt an indebtedness toward him. And Peter was freely eating and drinking with these people in their homes and at their love feasts, taking part in the Lord's table together with them. But now, when certain men came from James, he stopped. Whether these men sent to Antioch were sent by James or they came on their own accord, Peter feared them. 
he feared what they might say to the Jews back in Jerusalem. If the, Jews in, if, the, if the Jews in Jerusalem heard that he, as a Jew, was not keeping the traditions and the customs, that he was freely eating and drinking and fellowshipping with a group of Gentiles, what would they begin to think of him? What would become of his ministry in Jerusalem? What would become of his reputation back in Jerusalem? And our text says, and he drew back. He drew back, and then eventually he separated himself entirely. That word translated drew back, it is in its imperfect tense, which would suggest that Peter did this gradually. He did this sneakily. He was intentionally deceptive in what he was doing. He did it in a way that the Gentiles wouldn't know or pick up on right away, that he was no longer wanting to eat with them anymore. He was trying not to let the Jews who had come from Jerusalem know that he would actually enjoy eating and fellowshipping with these Gentiles. He was being intentionally deceptive, which really is the epitome of hypocrisy. People can sin even in ignorance, but this is hypocrisy. This was intentionally deceptive. First, he would be making all kinds of excuses for no longer accepting their invitations to where he would then no longer even eat with them at the same table when they had their love feast. And he would now go and sit at those tables. He would now intentionally go and sit at those tables where only the Jews were sitting. At first, he would just draw back, but he separated himself completely in such a way that though maybe he didn't say it with actual words, but by his actions, he was clearly indicating or saying that I, as a Jew, cannot fellowship with you as a Gentile. I, as a Jew, cannot enter into your home as a Gentile. I, as a Jew, am a Christian, a class above you as a Gentile. He did this even though God had clearly shown him that this was not true. When, he, when God sent him to Cornelius' house, Peter himself was the one who declared, God has shown me that I should call no man common or unclean. Yet by his actions, he was now stating that indeed these people were but common and unclean second-class Christians that he as a Jew was above sitting with them. And so he stood condemned. He was clearly in the wrong. His old sin nature, the old man, the, the one who had denied the Lord Jesus three times, though he had declared that though everyone else forsake him, he would remain faithful. The old man, the one, though he walked on the water the moment he saw the waves, was filled with doubt and began to sink. This old Peter now again reared his ugly head because of the fear of man. Because of the fear of what could and what might happen to his own reputation and to his own ministry status in Jerusalem if it was found out that he was freely and willfully and gladly eating with Gentiles. He was this highly regarded apostle in the Jerusalem church such that people wanted his shadow to fall on them. And Peter now, by his actions, he offends and he stumbles. He hurts deeply these dear brothers and sisters in Antioch who had regarded him so highly and who had treated him with such hospitality and love and kindness. 
But not only that, we see in Peter's actions the far-reaching consequences of gospel hypocrisy. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Not only did Peter sin against the gospel, not only did Peter sin against these dear brothers and sisters in the church who had so graciously and so kindly and lovingly hosted him, but because of his influence, because of his elevated status in the church, now the other Jews that were there, those who had previously also had sweet fellowship together with these Gentiles, they were now beginning to do the same thing that Peter was doing. No matter, dear brothers and sisters, no matter how secluded we might think our sin to be, it is never isolated. It always affects and infects others. And the more influence we have, the further reaching the effect of that sin is. And here's a warning then to us, not only as church leaders, though certainly that, but to all of us as members of the local church, as parents, as husbands, as fathers. We cannot think and we must not think that our sin, well, it's just our own sin before God. No, our sin affects our family and it affects the church. We're not only sinning against God as if that were not enough, But when we sin, we are sinning against our family and we're sinning against the church. And we see here then from Peter how far-reaching the consequences of gospel hypocrisy really are. Sin is never isolated. Sin always wants to lead others into sin as well. Our text says so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who was one of their co-pastors along with Paul. He was one of the co-pastors in this church in Antioch. He's the one who had gone and brought Paul to Antioch in the first place for the sake of ministering together with Paul here in Antioch. He was the one who had taught these Christians in Antioch that freedom in Christ is in the gospel and that this freedom in Christ that comes in and by and through the gospel tears down all racial, cultural, and social divides and barriers. He was the one who had taught them against what he himself now was doing. He had gone to Jerusalem with Paul, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. He had been at this Jerusalem council with all the apostles and elders where they defended the Gentiles. And they defended the Gentiles against the attack that was against them and against the gospel when the Judaizers would demand that the Gentiles must succumb to the Jewish traditions and customs to be considered Christian and part of the church. Barnabas, even Barnabas, was led astray by this hypocrisy. Barnabas, whose real name was Joseph, he was given the name Barnabas by the apostles because of who he was. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. This is who Barnabas was. He was an encourager. He was an encouragement. And he had been an encouragement to this church this whole time that he had been there as he taught and ministered to these believers here in Antioch. 
And so here then is a warning amplified to us. The warning that James writes in James 3 verse 1 when he says, Let not many of you become teachers, for we shall receive a stricter judgment. Because now, influenced by Peter, even Barnabas, who had taught them that there was no racial divide, there is no cultural divide, there is no social divide, that the gospel tears down all these barriers. Even Barnabas, the one who had been instructing them in this word, now also was living and acting to the contrary because of Peter's fear of man. Let not many of you become teachers, James says. They shall receive a stricter judgment because the teacher is standing before the people and the teacher is saying, Thus saith the Lord. And therefore, if thus saith the Lord... The people should then be able to look at them and should be able to look at how they live and from that determine and rightfully assume that thus saith the Lord on how we should live. People follow the example of the teacher. They do what he says and they do what he does. Therefore, that comes with this added accountability. Even Barnabas was led astray in their hypocrisy. We see the consequences of sin, how far-reaching it can be. Sin will always cause people to stumble. It will drag other people along with us into that sin. That's what gospel hypocrisy does. So that all these other Jews who had been in the church, who had had sweet fellowship one with another with the Gentiles, all together now followed in that hypocrisy. And so we have considered the clash that should come from gospel hypocrisy. We've considered the nature of that clash, the reason for that clash, and we've seen the cause of that clash. We've considered the consequences, how it offends and how it hurts our brothers and sisters, how it causes other brothers and sisters to sin against the brothers and sisters in the church and against the Lord. We've seen that it can have very far-reaching effects. And then verse 14 to 21, I think, is probably Paul's full response to Peter. But we want to look only at verse 14 this morning as the confrontation. And because of the far-reaching effects that gospel hypocrisy has, it must be confronted. Verse 14, the confrontation. When I saw their conduct, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? First of all, we want to note the motivation for the confrontation. Paul says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The motivation for the confrontation is the truth of the gospel. It was not for the purpose of being the one who would set someone straight. The truth of the gospel is the motivation. The truth of the gospel must be the motivation because the gospel eradicates, the gospel erases all and any cultural, racial, social divides and divisions. And by this action, the truth of the gospel was being minimized, it was being disguised, it was effectively being hidden. The truth of the gospel is that there is in Christ Jesus neither Jew nor Greek But their actions says, yes, there still is. 
As has often been said, the ground is level at the cross. But yet, their actions declared that there were some who had better access, or there were some who were still somewhat better. And yet, when Christ died and He hung on the tree, when He hung on the cross, and there was this great earthquake, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This curtain, which had previously blocked the Holy of Holies, where was the presence of God, it was removed, it was torn away, indicating that every barrier had been eliminated in Christ Jesus. Jew or Gentile, all now had equal access to God the Father and into His presence in Jesus Christ. And Antioch, this church where even now more than ever people were being saved, even in Antioch, Antioch had been the demonstration and the model of this gospel power. Antioch had been the demonstration of what the gospel does when it changes people. Because here in Antioch, the Jew and the Gentile were sitting together. They were eating together in sweet fellowship, worshiping their Savior together in harmony. For years, Barnabas with Paul had taught them that this is what the gospel does, and they had seen it, they had experienced it. Peter had been seen as a pioneer defender of this truth. But now Peter's hypocrisy and Barnabas following with him and the rest of the Jews along with them, by that not only was this beautiful and sweet fruit of the gospel destroyed, but it played right into the hands of the enemy. Dear brothers and sisters, gospel hypocrisy destroys the fruit of the gospel And it plays into the hand of the enemy. This action by Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews, it validated what these Judaizers were trying to do in the church. Those false brothers who Paul in chapter 1 of Galatians has said, let them be accursed. They were trying to convince people and persuade people that it was necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. These Judaizers were effectively trying to keep people from the gospel. These Judaizers were not proclaiming another gospel, as Paul says. It was a false gospel. These Judaizers were propagating a religion that that was Judaism-Christianized. But this must be the motivation then. This must be the motivation for the confrontation, and that is the truth of the gospel. And we see that that was Paul's motivation for this confrontation. Because it disguised the truth of the gospel. It destroyed that which the gospel had effectively been working in Antioch. He saw that they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. And when that is the motivation, we also then see the method. It needs to be confronted as wide as the offense. And if the offense has been public, it needs to be publicly addressed. Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all. This was a grave sin that had been committed against the gospel. They had sinned against the gospel. They had sinned against the Lord, against the church, against the Gentile believers who were in Antioch. 
This was a sin that was committed publicly. It was very divisive. And it was a sin that then needed to be dealt with and addressed quickly and just as publicly as it had been committed. And it needed to be addressed publicly, especially because it had been committed by Peter and Barnabas, even who were leaders in the church. Because by their influence, they were now leading all the others along into this hypocrisy. Now, not all sin needs to be dealt with publicly, but it must be dealt with. But when there is gospel hypocrisy among church leaders, it must be dealt with quickly and publicly. For as Augustine said, and I quote, it is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly, close quote. Paul does here in our text what he exhorts us and exhorts also in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if you have a copy of your scriptures before you, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul does that which he also instructs Timothy when he instructs the church in how they are to respond to the elders. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. When Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We are not to receive an accusation against an elder unless by two or three witnesses, meaning that unless it can be clearly proven or demonstrated that this is indeed a crime or a sin that he is guilty of. This is what Paul did with Peter. He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was clearly in the wrong. And if they cannot be proven or shown to be clearly wrong, we are not even to entertain an accusation against them. And that is because we should even anticipate that the enemy will try to bring accusations against them. But yet they are not being, they're not above being corrected. Verse 20, 1 Timothy 5. As for those who persist in sin, meaning they have been found to be clearly in the wrong, that there are two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So that the rest may stand in fear. That they may recognize the severity of the sin and the consequences of the sin. To do it publicly so that the church understands that gospel hypocrisy cannot and must not be tolerated. Then he says in verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Without prejudging. You do not determine someone to be guilty or innocent based on what you think of that person or whether you like them or whether you don't, on whether you like their family or who their family is. But you only rebuke them in the presence of all when they are clearly in the wrong so that all may fear but doing so, or but doing nothing from partiality. This speaks of the motive. Sin in the church that is not addressed is the very cancer that will destroy it from within. And if that sin is the sin of an elder or a pastor and it is not addressed, that just increases the rate at which it will destroy from within. And so we see then 
that the position, the prominence, or the influence of a church member is not the least bit to be a determining factor of whether or not sin is addressed. But it will sometimes determine how or if it is publicly addressed. MacArthur says, and I quote, A church that does not discipline sinning members, including the most prominent members, loses its credibility because it does not take seriously its own doctrines and standards, close quote. And so we see the method that it has to be as wide as the offense. And when it has been committed publicly, it needs to be publicly addressed. When it is a public sin, not only does it need to be as wide as the offense, it needs to be clearly identified. It needs to be clearly identified to the offender and to the people who have witnessed or who are aware of said offense. It must be clearly identified what the offense is and that there was indeed an offense committed and that it is being or that it has been addressed. Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul clearly confronts him to his face in the presence of all. He points out his hypocrisy. There's no beating around the bush. He's saying, Peter, your actions are not in step with the truth of the gospel. There's nothing vague or ambiguous about Paul's approach. There's nothing unclear about what he confronts him with in the presence of all. Then he says, Peter, you are a Jew, but you've been living like a Gentile. You've not given any consideration to your traditions or customs. You were eating with these Gentiles this whole time. You had fellowship with them. You enjoyed it. You saw nothing wrong with it. You encouraged it. You are a Jew, and you did not live like a Jew. You did not keep the customs and traditions. How can you now say by his actions, he was not saying this in word, but by his actions, he's pointing out the obvious inconsistencies. How can you now force these Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you are by your actions saying that the only way that Jews can have fellowship and unity with the Gentile is if the Gentile becomes like a Jew and adopts the Jewish customs and traditions. You are being a hypocrite. You yourself, Peter, did not do this. You lived like a Gentile. You ate what you wanted, when you wanted, with who you wanted. You were the very one who encouraged it, and you were the one who stated and taught us that fellowship and unity is in the gospel, not in Jewish customs. You were the one, Peter, who said God had shown you that you must not call anyone common or unclean. Peter, probably even at the request of his host, because of what that story meant to them, because of how it showed them that the gospel was also to them as Gentiles, they probably even again and again would ask Peter to recount this story, this encounter that he had with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit, of this vision of the sheet coming down and going into the centurion's home and centurion, or this centurion and his household then being saved. They knew about this. Peter had told about it. And we see that Paul clearly identified the hypocrisy and what it was that was being addressed. Gospel hypocrisy must clearly and unambiguously be confronted and addressed. But we need to wrap this up. We've seen the gospel hypocrisy of Peter. 
we have seen the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. We've seen the nature of that clash, that it is to be addressed at the source. And we see the reason for the clash, that when they are clearly in the wrong, there is nothing else to be done other than to address it. We have seen the cause of gospel hypocrisy, that it is the fear of man, that it is self-preservation, the focus being on self, not on Christ. The focus is not on what is right. The focus is not on what is true. We've seen the consequences of gospel hypocrisy and how far-reaching it is that it not only sins against the gospel, against our Lord, against the church and the people of the Lord, it drags others into that sin as well. And because of that, there's the necessity of confrontation. And in that confrontation, we have seen then that the motivation must be the truth of the gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, as much as we need to confront gospel hypocrisy, if our motivation is not the truth of the gospel, we are not equipped to confront anyone. But then being motivated by and for the truth of the gospel, the method must be as wide as the offense. And it must be for the purpose of protecting the flock. It must be clear. It must be clearly identified so that all know what is being addressed, why it is being addressed, and that it has been or is being addressed. Also, I think we can see from this account that even godly men, godly men can and do fail. And so that should then scream at us. It should be a loud reminder to us that we too can fail and we can fail miserably and we best not, we better not, we dare not think ourselves, think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It reminds us that even men that we look up to and listen to and follow can fail. That is why the psalmist says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. We also see in Peter's hypocrisy, we see that when we walk in the flesh, we are going to walk in gospel hypocrisy. If we walk in the flesh, we are going to be hypocritical about the gospel. And therefore, the solution is then Paul's exhortation to the Galatians in 5 verse 16 when he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is what will prevent gospel hypocrisy. But then, brothers and sisters, it is necessary. And I would have failed you as a preacher if I don't ask, even here, right now, is your conduct, is your life in step with the truth of the gospel? Are you in any way living in gospel hypocrisy? We have failed if we do not, after looking at this text, if we do not now, in all honesty and sincerity, ask the Lord to show us if there be any wicked way in us, and if He shows us that there is, that we then repent, as everything indicates Peter did as well, he received the rebuke. It certainly was not pleasant for him, I'm sure, in the presence of them all. But it is necessary for us to, with all honesty and sincerity of heart, ask the Lord to show us if there be any wicked way in us, so that we might repent of whatever gospel hypocrisy there is, if there is such, and that we might then walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, being faithful to our Savior and to our King, Jesus Christ, all to the praise of His matchless name. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, you are a good and loving God. You alone are great and worthy to be received praise and honor and glory and worship. Father, we thank you for how you, in your wisdom, have determined to leave us with this book, which is your word to us, so that we might not only know you, but that we might know how we then ought to live in light of knowing you. And so, Lord God, as we have considered this portion of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, as we have seen the gospel hypocrisy of Peter, the effects that it had, the far-reaching consequences, how it dragged Barnabas and the rest of the Jews along with him into that sin. Father, let us fear and tremble. Let us not neglect to repent if there be any wicked way found in us so that we might then walk in faithfulness to the gospel. And Father, if there be those among us, if there be those who we know who are maybe not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, Father, I pray that you would also work in our hearts, guard our hearts, so that we would not go and confront someone unless our motivation is truly and sincerely the truth of the gospel, so that we might then restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness as Paul later advises even in this same epistle. And so that you might continue to do your work of refining your church so that you will indeed bring to yourself your bride without spot or wrinkle. That you might continue to wash and purify her with the washing of water through the word. That she might altogether walk worthy of the gospel, so that the message that she proclaims to this lost and dying world would not fall on deaf ears, but that you would empower that to save all those whom you have chosen since before the foundation of the world, that you would not stifle our voice in calling your lost sheep to yourself, but that we would walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us all to the praise and the glory of our King. We pray in his name. Amen.